that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome back to the Miserable Offenders podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Nigro. I am the editor-in-chief at the North American Anglican online journal. That's northamanglican.com. Uh, you can also find me other places, Twitter, and, uh, you know, in person, but I got to know you better before I let you come to my house. Um, today, I'm joined by my co-host, uh, the venerable Andrew Brazier. Andrew? Hey, how are you doing, Jesse? Glad to be here. Uh, Andrew Brazier, serve as the Chancellor for the Jurisdiction of the Armed Forces and Chaplaincy, and also Rector of a Parish in Pelham, Alabama, Church of the Good Shepherd. And don't feel bad, listener, I haven't been to Jesse's house or met him in person either. So I'm also joined with the Venerable Isaac Rayberg. Uh, Isaac, it's always good uh, to see you as well. How are you doing today? Good to be with y'all, gentlemen. I'm doing real good. Just got back from uh, two days at the Texas coast. That's a that's a good thing. So that's good. That's good. So is that I'm, I'm not 100% sure Jesse isn't software on our screens only. So <laughs> AI, I'm, I'm the AI they threw out. Yeah, they're like, oof, this one doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So Isaac, going to the beach is that south of Galveston for you, or, or where is that located at? Uh, we like to go to Rockport Fulton, so it's a little uh, tourist slash uh, fishing town um, about, about uh, oh, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes from Corpus. Yeah. And uh, it's got uh, the only uh, certified blue beach or whatever that's called um, in Texas, uh, which means there's it's very clean. There's no waves. It's very shallow. Perfect for taking little ones. There you go. Yeah, you can't go wrong with that. Nice. Well, we're here, you know, discussing uh, something, you know, um, you know, a little bit less thrilling than Texas beaches. Um, that is Nicaea II, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, or according to some people, the so-called Seventh Ecumenical Council. So there's the big kind of question that we've really seen a lot of discussion on North American Anglican in terms of, of articles coming uh, from several different authors, you know, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that we had one from uh, River, uh, I think it's Devereaux. I assume that's how you pronounce his, his name. And once again, I people think so, yeah. yell at me if I butcher your name. Uh, I actually got uh, the Reverend Dr. Uh, Paul Castellano's name correct. And I'm saying it again because I told him if I say it again, I'll probably butcher it. So I guarantee you I mispronounced it that time around. But anyway, we had uh, River Devereaux who did kind of an initial article, as memory serves, I uh, had some responses. Uh, uh, Reverend uh, Father Ben Jeffries uh, responded. Uh, we also had one from Father Mark Perkins as well. And so a bit of a back and forth, which is nice. It's good to kind of see that discussion uh, kind of going on in terms of Nicaea II, its place within Anglicanism, 
Uh, and most importantly, for those who may not be familiar with the Seventh Ecumenical Council and Nicaea II, is the question of icons, uh, of imagery uh, in the churches. So, Isaac, you've, you know, had a lot of, um, you know, kind of discussion before the episode about this. I'm kind of curious, you know, where you kind of come in at the question of Nicaea II. And uh, feel free to kind of share some background of, of your kind of work and research uh, on the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Sure. So, uh, yeah, Nicaea II is, of course, pretty pretty uh, controversial in Anglican circles, um, Protestant circles in general, really. And um, there's some question as to how controversial it has historically been in the West. Period, um, and that's that's part of part of where some of this back and forth goes. And I, th- I think the thing that really intrigued me the most about this is it reminded me of the way that a lot of these uh, controversial issues were hammered out back in the day, 19th century, um, specifically in the newspapers. You know, you'd have a couple of uh, of clergymen go at it in the editorials. Uh, sometimes using pseudonyms, sometimes, you know, working under their own selves. Um, and I, I think, you know, the whole track for the times kind of kicks off some of the way of doing doing this sort of uh, controversy. And so um, I thought it was really neat that we've been part of the host to some of that. It just kind of reminded me of the way things had been once upon a time. And I really enjoy it much more than um, trying to ratio someone on Twitter. <laughs> which which is just not anywhere near as elegant of a way of handling controversy. And you're known for that, by the way, on Twitter. I'm just kind of really getting after people. So. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I tweet so little, and that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, and, and so we, we did have um, some back and forth that began with um, River's article, River Devereaux's article, um, a couple months ago. But um, before that, a couple years ago, we had had a similar back and forth it got kicked off when um, Father Jeffries did a uh, uh, an article on um, a, a way of doing invocation of the saints that might be more amenable to um, non-Anglo Catholics, and uh, Father Mark Perkins responded to that, and then there was a response from uh, Father Ben about um, Nicaea too, which led to a six-part um, response to. Uh, Jeffrey's uh, by Perkins on a different blog, Earth and Altar. And then things were quiet for a while until uh, a couple months ago when um, uh, River Devereaux's articles sparked it up. And so basically, the, 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 the reason why it's been such a controversy in Anglican circles is that um, we have in the Book of Homilies the homily against um, idolatry, the homily uh, uh, against the peril of perils of idolatry, which um, is very, very critical of Nicaea too, and um, it's uh, it has not always been well received in some Anglican circles, um, and, and really this this starts to 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 be kind kind of the questioning of the questioning really does happen with the uh, with the tracks for the times and the 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 really kind of the second generation of the Tractarians and Ritualists. Um, And so what ends up happening in our back and forth is that um, River Devereaux's article um, restates the case from the peril of idolatry and very much um, argues that if we 
if sol sola scriptura means that um, we have to reject Nicaea too because um, the scriptures are clearly against idolatry and Nicaea too is clearly upholding idolatry, a very classically um, reformed point of view on that. Um, uh, and then, Hey, Father Isaac, it, yeah. speaking on that, um, just the fact that that is sort of, like you said, this classical reformed position. I was thinking, you know, uh, someone might be listening to this and we, we might have people listening who are Anglican, Anglo-Catholic, Anglo-Reformed, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, you know, so people might be tuning in from, I, I imagine that some of my Roman Catholic friends would be like, wait, this is even a debate? I can't, like, <laughs> this is, that's weird, you know? Um, but I can also imagine some of my Presbyterian friends be like, this is even a debate? Sorry, I have to give them like a more Southern, sorry guys, a, a more Southern accent. Yeah, I just assume all... Two out of three of us being Southerners and Anglicans. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes I, I i've been told i have a midwest accent i don't know what that means i guess i, I sound like um people in kellogg's commercials but uh <laughs> that's exactly what it is i was trying to place it for you <laughs> it's kellogg's um but you know obviously um coming from different contexts you would assume sort of the norms of your own tradition and truth be told in Anglicanism in the 21st century, uh, in a lot of ways, um, Rivers Point, which is maybe a more reformed, maybe uh, presumably he sees it as a more formularies um, position, um, but we can talk about whether or not that homily really qualifies as a formulary later, um, has kind of lost. I mean, wouldn't you guys agree that like... He, yeah. If you walk into a typical Episcopal church, even if they're like, oh, we're low church, gospel, reformed Episcopalians, they're still got like pictures everywhere. It's just, it's kind of, um, you know, and this is a, a point that maybe like someone like Paul Zoll would make in like the Protestant face of Anglicanism is that um, not necessarily theologically speaking, but culturally and uh, aesthetically speaking, in a lot of ways, the the Anglo-Catholic Party kind of won all these debates. Does that sound right? Because I think it helps to yeah. maybe yeah, uh, lay the ground for why yeah. this is even a contested thing. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's a broad way of painting it, but I think it's an accurate way to kind of like, you know, digest, you know, where we at these days. Um, and what, what's interesting is you also have to wrestle with it if you're part of ACNA because the fundamental declaration, like on point five, it talks about concerning the seven councils. You know, if people had a heart attack, like, are you saying there's not seven councils? Well, I mean, according to the province, there is concerning the seven councils. And I'm quoting here of the undivided church. We affirm the teaching of the first four councils and the Christological clarifications of the fifth, fifth sixth and seventh councils insofar as they are agreeable to the Holy Scriptures. So a really delicate way of, of kind of like coming down on the issue saying, okay, when it comes to the seven councils, the first four, we just affirm, you know, period, all stop. And then it, when it comes to Christological clarifications, which really all of them were, were addressing Christological issues, they receive the fifth, sixth, and seventh so far as they're agreeable to Holy Scriptures, upholding that uh, ultimate Anglican formulary of going back to the scriptures in terms of our faith. But what does that mean, practically speaking? Like you're getting at, Jesse, is that you see images in churches, and of course, even during a Reformation, um, 
era in the English Reformation, you still have uh, stained glass. Not all of it is mm-hmm. taken out or removed. And interestingly, I'll, I'll throw this out there. While I was doing a little bit of reading before we recorded, it was interesting that uh, some of the correspondence and discussions between the so-called Greek church, what we would call the Orthodox church, and uh, Anglicanism during the um, 1600s included one uh, compliment from a, uh, an Orthodox uh, clergyman who said, you know, really lovely icons, and he's talking about the stained glass windows. And of course, the distinction there is we don't, as far as I know, <laughs> I mean, Anglicans do go and venerate, you know, the stained glass, you know, or other images. I'm sure that you can find that in contemporary practice. Um, but there's definitely a distinction in how we have received imagery and how we treat uh, the images compared to our Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox brothers and sisters. And so C.B. Moss wrote a little book um, called The Church of England and the, and the Seventh Council, and this was right around the turn of the 20th century where he addresses this issue. And um, what I saw in, in a lot of the back and forth is that Moss is referred to a lot, but um, I, I had not read Moss until recently. Um, kind kind of as as part of as I was looking looking at these articles uh, before before we had talked about doing this. And what what the case that C. B. Moss makes is that we often misunderstand what what is really being said regarding the veneration. Um, and, and a lot of that, he says, is cultural because there are ways of showing respect in the Eastern world that we just have never done in the Western world. And so his the, the case that he tries to make is that for us as Westerners, um, upholding the, the uh, decrees of the council that, that, that veneration is um, appropriate not just allowed, but actually appropriate and ought to be done, would look very differently for us as Westerners than it would for 8th century Easterners. And so the um, kind of the takeaway I got from Moss was it's not dissimilar to we remove our hats when we come into the chapel, um, you know, bowing, you know, slight bows when we cross the altar, or even... Um, putting your hand over your heart during the Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem, or if you're in the military, saluting, you know, the flag, that kind of thing. Um, so all of that would be the the level that that um, Moss says, anyway, the council requires for, for sacred images. That's a good perspective, and that was the question I was actually going to have, is like, if you had read that book, it's one of those where I have, like, seen snippets, you know, like kind of like going into it and, and looking up an issue, but not actually sat down and read it, which I need to. And uh, I was curious um, what his takeaway was on that. And you mentioned kind of differences culturally that, that he points to. Does he give any examples? I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. I'm just curious. Yeah, sure. David. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so one of, one of the things he talks about is the way that um, in the East, they would show respect to the to the secular rulers, particularly the emperor. And um, they would actually give a more profound bow. In, again, in, in the we're talking in the eighth century, and and I don't really yeah. know how long this continues because things do change. That's also around the time that the Muslim invasion is happening, and um, the Muslims are definitely iconoclastic. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but um, 
yeah, they would they would actually give a a a full on prostration uh, to the emperor, um, whereas to to Christ's presence in the blessed sacrament, they would do a bow, um, a much shallower bow. But that kind of bow they would never do to anything other than the blessed sacrament. Uh, you know, and, and and specifically because of their understanding of Christ's presence in the sacrament, um, which is another issue altogether. So, um, and and one of the points that 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 Mark Perkins makes in several of his articles is that um, the council doesn't tell us what this looks like, and so things are left up to interpretation. Uh, and and one of one of the other things that that. Moss says regarding the, uh, the the homily on the peril of idolatry is that um, it it gets history wrong. Um, I'm not as familiar with the history as I ought to be, to be honest. And and even kind of digging out my uh, my shaft edition of the fathers and the councils, um, that's probably the hardest reading in the councils is the one on the seventh one. And and I think a lot of that's just because the documentation is just not as good as it ought to be. So it's it's a very fuzzy issue. Now now do do y'all in your in your parishes and your home home worship or whatever do y'all incorporate images at all? That's a good question. So like at Good Shepherd, uh, I've inherited like some imagery. They're not icons like of the Eastern variety, but of the uh, the stations of the cross. Although we don't actually do Stations of the Cross um, as part of our, you know, Holy Week devotionals, so that's there. You know, when you first enter in, um, I did get an icon of Christ the Good Shepherd because I thought it was ironic that there's no imagery whatsoever uh, in Good Shepherd. Um, period. But besides those that are on the wall for the Stations of the Cross that related to Christ the Good Shepherd, so that was something that I purchased and donated uh, to the church. We don't have it like there in the in the you know, nave or in the sanctuary, like you would traditionally have it, you know, uh, we have it more of like, as you're actually entering into the nave, like there's Christ, the good shepherd. So it kind of catches your attention a little bit. So nothing elaborate in terms of like personal devotions. I don't have any personal devotions with icons. I love Eastern icons. I think they're, uh, they're beautiful despite being, you know, completely, literally foreign, you know, to, to the Western encounter in terms of the way the artwork is done but uh we have two of them that were gifted from ancient faith radio there was some sort of special that i bought some book from them is probably like the orthodox study bible or something like that at some point and they sent those two along so i have those uh in our uh, kids bedrooms you know just to kind of you know help them in terms of like you know who is this you know there's christ you know like you know what's going on in the icon so it serves as a great discussion piece as does all religious imagery and uh, I think that's one of those few things, not few, one of those interesting things that, you know, even uh, Southern Baptists, you know, Methodists, you know, across the board, we use imagery, uh, at least most of us do, in order to educate our, our children. So a little bit of a crossover there, uh, not doing veneration as the Eastern Church or some Western devotions would do, but still gaining an education and using it to form our little ones. So that's, that's what we do, at least. What about you, Jesse? Well, I'm going to pray for you, brother, for your two CV uh, that you've committed. Um, yeah, I actually had to look up what two CV meant this past year. because <laughs> I saw a, a Presbyterian uh, brother in Christ 
post on what was presumably just a gif or pixelated image of Jesus and found out that, um, I guess like, you know, just even a picture of Jesus anywhere, even if not intended for worship or any kind of, uh, liturgical use is out for certain traditions. So, um, yeah, well, I've run across some, some PCA or OPC folks who, um, consider nativity sets absolutely problematic for, for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, any depiction of the Lord period. So it's mm-hmm. not even so much they're against religious imagery, but specifically depictions of, of Jesus. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I can tell you sort of what we do at home, which maybe can clue in the audience to sort of where I stand on these issues in general. Uh, we have um, a crucifix in the living room. Um, there's one in one of my kids' bedrooms, and there's um, an old, uh, a, actually a poster I got, so it's not a real icon, but it's a poster, like a 17 by 24 poster of the Christ Pantocrator, uh, sort of the famous... Um, painting in my son's room uh and these are not these are sort of uh i would say um helpful tools reminders um of the presence of christ or um even you know just across sort of uh something in your environment to um allow you to uh be reminded of uh who you are kind of reorient, you know, people. Um, I never really did a icon corner. I mean, I've had friends that were sort of into that. And, um, as far as like the, the Eastern icons, my take is a little bit, maybe will sound weird, but, um, I think some of them are pretty cool looking, but as far as like adorning, uh, Western churches, I just think, like, it, this is kind of like the Percy Dearmer in me or whatever. I'm like, we have our own traditions, and I prefer to sort of do things in an English or even an American sort of way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so that's kind of like my approach. As far as, like, whether anybody looks at these, you know, I, I, have, I you know, to, to add a little flavor to the conversation, I have a friend who... Um, Grew up evangelical like me, spent uh, many years as Eastern Orthodox and um, recently kind of came out. And one of the big problems, like actually the major thing he wanted to talk to me about at first was, what do you do with icons? Because the way people talk about them around here, it's like these are like literal portals into heaven. And, you know, they're like church ladies will walk around and be like, oh, I saw you know, Mary Magdalene like winked at me while we were passing by, you know, I, I mean, there's a real, um, you know, from just from his description and and I've heard it from other people. Um, if there's anything superstitious that could be called superstitious, it seems like it is legitimately taking place, maybe not across the board, but certainly in certain, um, contexts. And this kind of goes into this windows into heaven idea, but, um, Father Isaac, maybe you have more to say about that. 
Peril, uh, the homily on the peril of idolatry, as well as Calvin's take in the Institutes, and a lot of the just the the, the way that our divines have historically um, been very very um, cautious about imagery is is that very issue of superstition, um, and, and mo most of what we see historically is less addressing some of those Eastern. Tendencies towards superstition than it is the kinds of superstition that come out of medieval Roman Catholic practice, um, and, and continued for a very long time, and sometimes continues today. So I think I think that's that's the big that's the big fear. And in the in the homily, the basic gist of it, you know, all of the historical issues aside, that the theological issue is um, while images in general may be okay um with the possible in the, in the case of the, the homily definite exception of christ <laughs> but while images may be okay um if they're going to be part of the, the worship space it's going to turn into superstition and idolatry eventually it's not going to just educate the illiterate it's not going to just be the the bible for the person that can't read it's going to turn into superstition I don't think that's an issue in Anglican circles. Like you are not going to find Anglican church ladies thinking Mary Magdalene was winking to them in an icon. That's just not our cultural thing. Um, yeah, so at least not North America anyway. Um, and, and the other issue is if this is ecumenical council, which it's really hard to deny it's the fact that it is ecumenical, does that mean we have to affirm it in order to be Catholic. Um, there's a great quote in um, the Schaff edition of the of the of the seven councils. And this this was by um, was not written by Schaff. It was written. The editor for this one was um, Henry Percival. But, um, you know, he, he basically says it, you, you, you can't you can't deny that this is ecumenical. It meets all the criteria. He says, but if it's this is the quote, if its doctrines are false, then one of the ecumenical synod set forth false doctrine, a statement which should give no trouble as far as I can understand to anyone who does not hold the necessity, or sorry, does not hold the necessary infallibility of ecumenical synods. And our formularies do not mean, say that. I mean, our formularies are okay with the Seventh Council getting it wrong, if it did get it wrong. Yeah, um, well, and that's, I think that's an important way to frame this um, especially in, and I think, you know, going back to formularies, um, you know, we began this conversation, Andrew, you mentioned, uh, sort of canonically, where does the seventh council fit, um, for the ACNA? Uh, also, I think it's important to sort of like people, wherever they're coming from, whether it's a, the same province or a sub jurisdiction or whatnot, canonically, where do the homilies fit? You know, what kind of authority, um, it sounds pragmatic, but I think it's also part of prudence. Sure. But there's a real sense in which what does Anglicanism teach? Well, it depends on who your bishop is because you will have specific commitments that are constitutionally um, authoritative or not, right? If you're, if you're in one of the uh, G3 continuing um, churches, then it's seven councils all the way down, right? Yeah, right. There's, there's okay. no denying it. 
Um, it's a different situation in the ACNA, and that makes a difference. Same thing with the homilies, right? How yeah. authoritative is this homily? And, you know, and kind of making that point, like with the G3, from my understanding, it's probably going to vary between each one of those three of the G3, how they word it. But uh, overall, stereotypical, you know, they would say that those seven councils would trump your interpretation of the articles. Go to the councils first, interpret the uh, articles of religion and uh, the book comfort in light of the councils. Whereas traditionally, uh, English reformers and, and afterwards would say, our formularies are how we receive the Catholic faith. And so you're starting there, not because they're perfect. They even admit you got to go back to the scriptures, but because that's the lens in which we have received the Catholic faith. So very important in terms of like, you know, where are you located in terms of your uh, Anglican jurisdiction and uh, how that's interpreted. But you raise a great question, Jesse, in terms of are the homilies, uh, you know, part of the formularies, yes or no? And the 1662 International Edition does, uh, I think, a, a wise job of one of the additions they make. Uh, of course, it's appendix. Uh, on their appendices, they add the homily uh, for the justification of man, which is also known as the uh, homily uh, for the salvation of mankind, I believe. I don't have it in front of me, so I'm kind of going off the top of my head. But, uh, but And they include that because it's the only homily that's referenced as go here for a further uh, explication of doctrine upon justification uh, by faith. Now, of course, the other homilies are also referenced. There's an article, you know, unto the homilies as well, but that's the only individual homily that's also cited, uh, and I think in two places off the top of my head, as being authoritative. So you at least have that homily, you know, like in the back. Uh, that's where you go to to further understand what does it mean to be justified by faith? You know, what is, you know, faith only, you know, as it's worded in the articles, what does that mean, you know, um, for us Anglicans? But Isaac, what are kind of your thoughts there? Yeah, and, you know, Moss talks about this in his article, which, by the way, it's only like 50 pages long. I mean, he calls it a book, but it's it's very short. I, I read it in two days. Um, kind of in between doing other things, so it's it's and uh, we'll we'll put a we'll put a link to it in the um, in the in the his, in the uh, show notes because you can get it uh, online as a PDF. Um, but um, what what he he says that okay we we affirm in the articles um, the homilies the second book of homilies in a very general way. He says, but that doesn't necessarily mean all the specific details of each homily. And regarding the homily on the peril of idolatry. Um, he says, you know, in his day, he says, you talk to a thousand clergymen, you're going to be lucky to find one that has read it. Um, you know, you talk to a thousand laymen, you're going to be lucky to find one that has even heard of it. Um, so, so certainly by the end of the 19th century, um, this particular homily had fallen from any status that it had previously, um, and it's a slog. I mean, it's it's hundred. It's it's a couple hundred pages, um, in you know three a homily in three parts. That's a couple hundred pages. Nobody ever preached this from the pulpit. I'm thinking. Which is that would have been a doozy, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, which, and it's also it's also yeah. unlike every other homily there because it nothing is. none of the other ones in either the first or the second book. Especially, you know, my my edition, the Griffiths edition, has each each homily split into two or three parts. None of those are more than fifteen minutes. I mean, they, they, they none of those homilies are even getting warmed up for a good Southern Baptist. <laughs> uh -huh. 
This is true. Yeah, this is true. It reminds me of um it, it, one of one of the uh, was it Pride and Prejudice? You know, there's there's the the young minister suitor who's um, interested in Elizabeth Bennet, and uh, he has this uh, tendency to preach from the homilies. And I think one of the movie scenes, you know, there's he's going on and, and the, the people are sort of dozing off in the pews, you know, it's like this uh, beautiful pic- picture of Victoria in England. Um, but, it, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there there is real gold in the book of homilies. There's some really great stuff in there. Um, Absolutely. But I kind of agree with sort of the philosophy of the 1662 international edition this is stuff that I've seen um, Peter Toon say when he was living um, that, you know, the, the homilies are as authoritative as they are called upon insofar as they're individually called upon by the authoritative articles. You know? and, and I think that's something to rest upon because Article 35, it talks about, of course, y'all know like, there's two books of homilies. You buy them as one you know, edition today, no matter which edition you get. Well, I'll say with the exception of there's uh, Reverend Lee Gaddis has done a modernization of the first book of homilies because they're, they're shorter. But for nine times out of ten when you're buying it, it's called the books of homilies. And under Article 35, it talks about how the second book of homilies, and they actually list them out, it contains godly and wholesome doctrine and necessary for these times, as doth the former book of homilies, referencing the first book of homilies. Uh, which were set forth in the time of Edward the Sixth, and therefore we judge them to be read in churches by ministers diligently and distinctly, that they may be understanded of the people. I doubt that they were understood by the people when it comes to the homily <laughs> against the peril of idolatry, but that is what the, what the article says. So, Jesse, I think you make a good point that they contain godly and wholesome doctrine, because you can see even that long homily against the peril of idolatry. I mean, right there in the title, it explains what the concern is is the concern of falling into idolatry through the abuse of imagery in the churches. And it even says in Article 35, necessary for these times, we kind of echo what we talked about of now that we're outside of that particular period of time, we're not all a bunch of former Roman Catholics learning what it means to live a reformed Catholic faith. We're kind of distant from that. And heck, you know, we're, we're recording this and we see each other's images on a screen. Images are everywhere. It's certainly a different context that we're in. And one other uh, last kind of plug I'll make is that, interestingly enough, as you all know, the Protestant Episcopal Church, when it received the Articles of Religion, it omits the homilies uh, in terms of having it, you know, as part of the 39 articles that the uh, Episcopal Church received. It, it acknowledges, I don't have the language in front of me, I think it acknowledges that it's good doctrine, but due to the circumstances of the Revolutionary War, they need to be edited and republished, which of course they never do. So, Yeah, that that's kind of the gist I got from the American version is um, we need to revisit this and then we just never have. <laughs> yeah, um, and as we've kind of already described, many of these things Things seem to have been uh, settled over time, if not theologically, culturally, and um, institutionally, sort of. Um, now, this isn't always the best uh, way to measure whether something's right, the right thing to do or not, but it's what's what's permitted, you know, <laughs> what the bishop allows. Um, 
but I think there maybe is some room for saying, look, um, we we need to be as a community, we need to be permitted to um, sort of take the long view and interpret some of these things prudentially over time. Um, of course, that could also be said to justify um, gay clergy and any number of other things. So um, we that's not an absolute. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, I, I, I'm not personally, it, I don't get the sense that like there's this huge danger, like my friends, you know, Orthodox Church that, you know, people are going to be looking at the pictures, trying to, you know, uh, do sign language with saints in heaven, you know. Um, I don't know if that's like, a, a, you know, our the, the real danger of our age. Uh, many people would say that we live in a very secularized age when, quite frankly, um, people could do with a little more uh, sort of a hint of the transcendent. Um, and as sort of biblical literacy and literacy in, in general um, seems to be on the decline, um, I think there's a case to be made that for pragmatic reasons, uh, religious imagery that can drive home the stories of the scriptures um, in our worship spaces might have a real role to play. It, on, the, on the contrary, I for aesthetic reasons, and, and this is maybe just personal, um, I kind of like the austere, old-school Anglican look, you know. Um, it's, you know, call me, you know, a Deermerite again, you know, but um, I like patterns. I like an image here and there, but, um, you know, if I, if I had to go and look at the iconostasis every week, I think I'd find that massively distracting. And maybe that's a cultural thing, but hey, um, I think that doesn't make it uh, a non-issue either. Yeah, Jesse, I really like what you said about sticking with um, kind of the, the Christian culture that we've received. And so for me, you know, I would therefore prefer, you know, if you're building a church anew, you know, like having like a stained glass, you know, uh, as much as I like the, the art of the Eastern icon, it, it seems out of place if you have that in, you know, the nave or in the sanctuary within the altar. Uh, for me personally, um, it's nothing I'm going to go overturn tables for, for crying out loud. But I also think kind of echoing what you said that we need to have a sense of respect in worship, a uh, healthy fear of the Lord. And so for, for most Anglican churches I've visited, they'll have a gospel uh, procession, or even if they don't, at the reading the gospel, we'll all rise respectfully because the word of God is, is being read over us. And even in the procession, uh, having a slight bow at the cross, uh, entering in and leaving uh, the nave is something common. And so I think that when it comes to, to imagery, you know, it's, you don't necessarily have to do an Eastern practice of venerating the icon by, by kissing it and, and bowing down to it. But I think we all need to have a recovery across the board of just a respect for the word of God. And even, you know, the local Baptist church, to their credit, they don't just set a Bible down anywhere. They treat that you know physical word of God with, with quite a healthy amount of, of respect uh, that it's due. So but that's really a topic for another day in terms of, of respect within worship. Any final final thoughts there, Isaac, um, on maybe uh, some point that we maybe we could all sort of carry out from these uh, 
articles that we looked over or, um, you know, what's, what, what's, what should the, uh, the listener take away from this conversation? Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, it's, it's good that we work these things out. Um, it doesn't mean they're always going to get resolved. Uh, you know, I, I find myself at the end of the day of two minds about some of this. Um, we, we have them in our chapel. I put them there, but they're, they're very much kind of as the family portraits. It is nowhere near like what you would see in an Eastern Orthodox place. I mean, I, I tend to find that a little, little, little too gaudy for my Western, um, sensibilities anyway. So, you know, I, I tried to set ours up in a, in a very simple way, but still, still have something there. Um, and I think, I think at the end of the day, the, the big thing is, um, we, we need to, we need to make sure that we are charitable to our brethren. I, I think the, you know, the, 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 the case that we get from some of my friends in the continuum that says, if you don't do this, then you are not Catholic, you're basically a Protestant sect, um, that's, that's uncharitable. You know, I, I think the, 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 um, the uber reformed guy that sees a crash at Christmas and say, sees that as idolatry, um, and then accuses us of idolatry for having one is also very uncharitable. Um, and we, we ought to, we ought to try to seek to understand where that other, that other side is coming from. Um, even as we do recognize we have, we have common boundaries. Yeah. And, and just to piggyback on that idea, uh, within the Anglican tradition, um, I, I tend to be of this mindset that, you know, uh, what, what would make the Anglican church a truly Catholic church would be, um, for the parishes to have common prayer, that is, that you could know the liturgy no matter where you went. But also that these longstanding, legitimate sort of uh, houses within the house, whether you lean more reformed or more high church or what have you, uh, people coming from those different traditions could visit your church regardless of what the culture on the ground is and not feel utterly alienated. Absolutely. So, so I don't think you can please everybody, but I do think you can be, as you said, charitable. Mm -hmm. I think that charity falls within what makes us united as Anglicans. You know, we've talked about it in a lot of podcasts and and to have, you know, a, a respect and upholding our formularies is the first step forward, I think, to having a church where low central and high churchmen um, can live together and even worship together as you visit from place to place. Amen. Awesome. Well, I think we've uh, done the subject justice. Uh, This is, of course, just the tip of the iceberg. Um, Looking at some of the notes that we got to share earlier, I can tell you now that um, uh, Isaac did a lot of research here, and this is definitely a, a project he's passionate about, and that I, as editor of the North American Anglican, will hope to uh, coerce and bully him into writing an excellent article for us in the near future. But I might um, be afraid of uh, Father Ben or Father Mark or, 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 uh, or River coming after me if I do. I don't know. I, I just like the fact that the 
the artificial intelligence is going to you know force you to write this article. So AI is getting scary, guys. It's getting scary. They're going to make you do theology. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, hey, we always have fun. And hopefully, listener, we've given you something to uh, chew on. Feel free to um, at us at Twitter or Facebook or um, however you enjoy your podcast. We like uh, positive, not negative reviews on iTunes and subscriptions and all that stuff. So... Um, With that said, this is me, Jesse Nigro, saying goodbye. Take care. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to to the glory of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.